I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello. You may have heard there's a bike race coming up soon in France. As we record this, the 2018 Tour de France is nearly with us. Just the small matter of some football to get out of the way first. One of the most distinctive writers on cycling, and the Tour in particular, is the French poet, author and journalist Paul Fournel. His books, Need for the Bike and Anquetil Alone, have been published in English and many of his articles have appeared in Rouleur magazine. His love of cycling and his fascination with the legend of Jacques Anquetil began at a very early age. In fact, my father was a cyclist. He was not a racer at all, and, uh, but he was a cyclist. And so I've, you know, I've heard about uh, cycling since my my very, very childhood, and very beginning, maybe maybe two, two years old or one year old, I, I don't remember. And um, I started to ride when I was nine, and I started to love uh, Jacques Anquetil at that time, at the same time. <laughs> what was it about Anquetil, uh, amongst all the other great French riders of the time, all the great international riders of the time, that really appealed to yeah. the young you? You know, I, I, I was... Absolutely unable to analyze why I loved him because I was too young, but I wanted to be him. I wanted to look like him, and uh, of course, we had quite a difference. He was uh, tall, blonde, uh, lean, and uh, I was uh, short. I was dark and was big, and so <laughs> that was not exactly the good story. But um, I loved him because I, I guess that the first thing is that he was so beautiful on the bicycle. Oh, I've never seen that, you know. At that time, there was no wind tunnel, there was nothing of that kind, and uh, it was all by instinct. And uh, he was so beautiful. He was pedaling like no one else. And so I think this is the reason why, as a little boy who wanted to, to, to be a cyclist, I was fascinated by him. But he wasn't universally popular in France at all, was Oh, no, he? not at all. Not at all. The popular guy was uh, Raymond Poulidor, of course, who was exactly uh, the French peasant uh, from Massif Central, uh, huge shoulders, uh, broad shoulders, uh, strong guy and uh, very willing and... Uh, and, and very nice at the same time. And so people loved him. And uh, on top of everything, he was losing, so which made him even more sympathetic than, than he was. But we always think that, you know, loving the loser and the underdog is a British thing, but uh, it's, it's, it's a French trait It can as happen well. in France, too. <laughs> yes, in that case, in that case, it happened. And um, 
he had nothing um, of the elegance of Jacques Anquetil, of course, but he was very popular. And Jacques Anquetil was popular too, but um, not as much as uh, Raymond Poulidor. British people, I think, uh, always regard Anquetil as the sort of quintessential French cyclist. There was a, you know, if, if we, he reflected. Um, yeah. To our view, a lot of the characteristics of the French nation. But yes. so it's surprising he wasn't sort of that's taken true. more to the yeah, nation's that's heart. True. That's true, but um, he wasn't, um, I must say, on the elegant side of France, if, 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 there, if there is one, I don't know. But if there is one, he was on that side, a little aristocratic. And um, there's the other side of France, which is the deeply rooted into uh, the countryside and, uh, and the Massif Central and the climbs and everything. And, and Jacques Anquetil was on the other side. 50 years before, he was people, as we say in French now. He was people. So um, he loved beautiful cars, he loved beautiful clothes, beautiful women. Um, and, and he was always... Uh, kind of showing off and uh, it was always in the, in the magazine Paris Match and Paris Match was the magazine with the, the photos and uh, with all the stars and he was a star. We'll talk a little bit about um, Anquetil Alone, your, your book, in, in a second. Right at the end, you, you sort of refer to his um, personal life, which, to put it mildly, was complex, right at the end of the book. Um, is his complicated personal life a, a, a still a, a huge issue in France, or do people just yes, shrug um, it off? For a very long time, uh, this life was kept secret. And um, the one to open the, the door was uh, his daughter when she wrote a book. But it was later and later on. Anctil was dead for a long time. And so, uh, but she, um, she was the one to, uh, to tell the story. And the story was that he had a baby with the daughter of his wife. And the story goes on, and then he, he married the, the wife of the son of his wife, and so on and so on. And so it's quite a strange, um, strange life, a strange personal life. I must say that at the time, we didn't know about that. There was always the uh, mythic couple, uh, Jacques and Janine Anquetil. They were, you know, and everywhere on magazines, and, uh, and she was always with him. And so th this was kind of a... Uh, a very huge love, uh, official, uh, popular, huge love, and uh, then, you know, when he was, uh, when he, s he started to um, to be a gentleman farmer after the race time, and uh, he, he wanted to have a baby, and so uh, they had that incredible idea to, um, you know, Janine was unable to have babies anymore, and so he had that incredible idea to have a baby with Janine's daughter that he had raised. And so, they uh, then yeah. entered into a relationship. Yes, absolutely. And so that was quite... quite. It's always surprising. struck me that Christmas at the Onkatils must have been quite, <laughs> quite tense. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there was a war. Of course, they lived all together during about 15 years. But then there was a clash between the girls. And, uh, of course... Uh, Anquetil was losing it, and uh, uh, that was impossible. They, they, that was simply impossible. And so they left. When you set out to write um, your book, um, I was going to call it a biography, but it's not sort of, it's certainly no. not a conventional biography. No, is not it? at all, not at all. I was, um, when I started to write the book, um, 
it was 50 years after the facts, and I was just wondering why. I wanted to um, to answer the question, why uh, was I so attracted to him, and why? What, what was the mystery of that? Because, you know, when you're a little boy, you do not know why you do things and why you love things. You know, for example, when Eddie Merckx was at its best, I was 15, I was 19, I was 20. So I had explanations. I knew because, I, you know, I knew he was winning, he was strong, he was doing this, he was doing that. So I, I, I was able to analyze my, uh, my interests into him and others. But Jacques Anquetil, I was much younger than that. And, um, and I wanted to, um, to, you know, to explore the, this kind of love this kind of attraction that I had for him, this, uh, that was it. It's always struck me that cycling, uh, more than possibly any other sport rather than, uh, other than boxing, has always attracted some interesting writing. Yeah, that's quite understandable. First thing, um, you know, cycling, uh, cycling race, the Tour de France, um, was made to, to, to first place to, to sell a newspaper. So the link with writing and with reading is very strong at the very beginning. Then if you think about uh, what um, Tour de France or Giro is, it, it's nothing but a feuilleton. You know, it's literature because you have the bad guys, you have the good guys, and then, you know, you have uh, someone losing something on one day and getting it back on the following day. There's kind of a, you know, kind of a mystery going on. And so um, this is a very strong link with, li with literature. You can tell a story, you know, and, and you can tell the story of the race in very different ways. I remember when I was a kid, when I was in, yes, 15, maybe 16, I was reading L'Equipe every day. And um, this was for me uh, the best school to understand what style is. Because um, at the same time, there was the paper by Chani. And Chani was, you know, the top, top journalists. And he was writing the race at the beginning, at the middle, at an end. There were events. Everything was absolutely scrupulously detailed, and that was nice. And so, you know, it was so nice that when people asked Anctilo what happened today, he said, ask Shani. Uh, Shani was the one to know. And, you know, on the same page, you had the paper by Jacques Godet, who was the boss of the Tour de France, and he was into big lyricism. This was, you know, wow, the, the top mountains and going down deep and, uh, you know, big guys and so and so. And then you had the third one, which was Antoine Blondin. And Antoine Blondin was more on the cultural side, the literary side, funny side of the race, and always picking up the small detail that makes a difference. And so, you know, there are so many different ways of uh, telling the story of the race that it, it's, li it's literature, cycling is literature. And on top of that, you have the time, you have time. It's long, it takes time. You know, the Tour de France takes 20, 21 days. And um, it, it, it's, it's more difficult, apart from boxing, but boxing, um, I think that writers are fascinated by what's around boxing. 
you know, the bad guys and uh, uh, this strange stories and those boxes that are coming from nowhere and getting punched in their faces. And, and so, you know, there is something um, violent in it. it. It's more like noir literature. And, um, but cycling is more like, uh, like feuilleton-like stories and uh, that, that works. And that has always been the case. And, of course, for much of the history of cycling, and in particular the Tour de France, a lot of the stories were almost fiction themselves, weren't they? Yeah, of course. Many of the stories that we know and love about the Tour were made up by by writers. Yeah. And so this is a... um, And, you know, on top of the race itself, you have a lot of things going on in the background. You know, and people like that, in fact... People like those doping stories and those, uh, you know, 1988 uh, and, and 1998 and 1996 and so and so. And they all remember those things that are the, the story under the story. I know about that. And so this is a mystery. To what extent does the fact that France hasn't had a winner of the tour since... Ino. Ino. <laughs> um, to what, what effect does that have on the French psyche? Things have been changing so much and so fast. You know, at the very beginning of Tour de France, there were guys from Belgium, there were some Italians, Spanish and French. That was it. Maybe some guys from Holland from time to time. That was it. And so now you have guys coming from everywhere in the world. Not only American but English people and and also guys coming from Middle Europa and all, all those guys. So it's quite legitimate that um, we do not have um, a big French champ these days but um, I think it will come back at some point. Um, you know, I'm I'm not very interested in uh, um, in seeing French guys uh, win. I, I like the race for the race, and uh, if the English one is good, I'm happy. I'm happy. So, um, but of course, of course, we are expecting we are expecting a big champion. Uh, we've been waiting for more than 20 years now, and uh, 30 years, and. Um, we expect always, so one day it's uh, Alaphilippe, uh, <laughs> you know, the other day we say, oh, maybe this one, maybe there's one. <laughs> but for time being, no, there's no, no French, no, there are very good French racers, but there's not a winner. We do not have a winner. You have a lot of winners here in England, potential winners, and they are, that's good. So you had the Wiggins years and Froome years, uh, and maybe more to come, I don't know. But it's good, I like that. Tell us a bit about your latest book, uh, Les Cartes du Tour. Yeah, so this is a book um, which is a, a comfortable book. It's, it's a book with pictures. And those pictures are all the maps of the Tour de France from 1903 up to now. And um, for every year, Guy Andrews and, and Taz Darling, who are, who are the publishers of the book, um, have found maps coming from everywhere 
in the world, different shapes, different colors, different, um, you know, some are from uh, uh, children's book, others are the official maps of the Tour de France, others are from L'Equipe, others are from, you know, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, and so and so. And, um, and I try to tell the story of the maps. I try to tell a story which is, of course, the story, it's a small story, it's the story of the maps, but at the same time, big picture is the story of France. You know, new roads that are opening in the mountains, new ways of, you know, of, of traveling, you know, the, the first, first trains, TGV, planes, uh, everything. And so it, it tells a lot about the history of France as well and the geography of France. And it, it tells also a lot about uh, the history of cycling itself because the rules have changed. At the beginning, the, uh, you know, the, the maps of the, the tour was touring exactly France, even touring more than France because uh, there was always a stage in Metz which was German at the time, so that was, that was a big fight every year. But that's the story, so this is a history of, um, of this. And then the rules have changed years after years. Now, at the beginning, uh, they had, you know, 350 uh, kilometers per stage. They were starting during the night. They were pedaling all night and all day long. Then they had couple of days rest and, and uh, the following one and so now uh, there are rules you cannot have too too long a stage uh, you you can have too short ones uh, you have to do uh, uh, this or that kind of um, of call in the alps you cannot do uh, more than four or five calls uh, in the day five thousand meters or whatever and so there are rules like this and so this is the story of the of the race at the same time and what are your thoughts about um, 2018? Are you looking forward to the uh, 2018 tour? It's a strange one, map-wise. <laughs> it's a strange one because you have uh, um, they have to take two planes, which is quite strange. So there's the first diagonal going from Brittany uh, to um, uh, north of uh, maybe um, Alsace or something like that, and then you have a second diagonal going from Annecy to Biarritz which is uh, quite um, surprising. Uh, and then they have to take an, a plane to go back to Paris and to finish on the Champs-Élysées. So it's one of the um, most bizarre maps uh, of the history of Tour de France. And um, there is also um, another detail. If you check on the, on the map, you will see that um, you arrive someplace in, in a city, but they leave from another one in the morning, the following morning not very far from the first one. So means maybe that there's not enough money to pay for both uh, arrival and departure, maybe, I don't know. But it, because it costs money, of course. They have to pay, you know, the cities have to pay. It can pay back. They pay a lot of money, but not, it's not huge, huge money. But that can pay back. Remember, 1975, for the first time, there was a stage coming in that little ski resort of the south of Alps known as Pralou. And this is where the huge, you know, 
Eddie Merckx himself was beaten by um, uh, Thévenet, and um, all of a sudden, Pralou was known worldwide. <laughs> this little city was all of a sudden, you know, more more notorious than uh, Val d'Isère or, or Courchevel. <laughs> so, so it was quite interesting. That can bring uh, some uh, uh, some good to um, to some of those cities. Others are ritual cities, and every year you have something, maybe Bordeaux, Saint-Etienne. Uh, uh, so those are the, the habitual suspects, usual suspects. Paul Fonnell and Anquetil Alone is published by Pursuit Books and Les Cartes du Tour will be out in July, published by Rafa. The peloton as a whole doesn't want the racing start immediately. If it does, it makes the race harder. Team leaders trying to intimidate everybody. No change back here, Charlie. Just some serious blocking going on. Some of the fascinating middle-of-the-peloton footage from the new film Time Trial. It's a look at life as a pro cyclist, centering on David Miller's last professional season. Although, like Paul Fennell's book on Anctil, it's far from your standard bike biography. For director Finley Pretzel, it's been a long journey. I feel like the film's actually always been in the back of my mind, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, officially, maybe it's ten years from start to finish, in a way, but, but I feel like... it. it just recently I've been thinking it's actually been there for a lot longer than that as a bike racer or fanatic I suppose it's it's always been just gestating in a way so was the idea always to kind of make a film about bike racing rather than a specific story yeah no it was always about uh not the big champions in the sport somebody who's not who's very good rider but not out front the big names the Lance Armstrongs the Wiggins the Frooms it it was about what goes on behind all of that and so but it was always about bike racing it was never about a specific person or story or and when you tried to raise money for it when you tried to talk to you know other people about getting the film made how uh, how difficult was that Incredibly difficult, I think. And I think because it's a doc- a, a documentary and B, ambitious in what it was trying to achieve, I think. It's my first feature-length film, so that's also a, a difficulty. But it becomes... I think what you fast realise is there's lots of cycling fans out there. We kind of wrote, um, raised some private investment for the film, quite a lot, actually. And... And we thought that would be the the route to go. There's lots of cycling aficionados, film people. They, you know, but you're making a film on an idea. You're you're asking them to give money to an idea. It's not a. There's no script. There's no stars attached, apart from David Miller. But apart from that, it becomes very difficult. And I mean, stars as in star actors. I think that's the way these things usually work. So it, yeah, it was a long road to do that. I think, but. The more and more people you talk to, it has been 10 years that it's been on the go, but most of these films take five, six, seven, eight years, you know, 
if not beyond. Where did the um, connection with David Miller come about? When when did you decide he was going to be the centrepiece of the film? I made a film called Standing Start in 2006, and it was a lot of it was shot at these revolution events, the track events in Manchester. It was based on Craig McLean. Craig McLean, yeah. So it was based there. We, Fran Miller, was part of the company who, you know, organised these events. And I saw David. He was in the crowd, or he kind of came out, did a few laps at the velodrome for some reason. And I was suddenly reminded, or struck by his presence again. You kind of notice him, this big, tall, handsome well-groomed-looking guy who was around for Sonia Duval at the time. And I'd suddenly thought, oh, maybe maybe we could... Maybe it's him. <laughs> it was a very just fleeting thought, I think, and then we... And he appears, like, for a microsecond in that film. And then roll on a year or two after we'd finished the film and I'd made sure he got the film back from Fran. And we... I arranged a meeting together at the Braveheart cycling dinner in Scotland where he was coming and we sat and talked and stayed up all night talking about how this could work and I think the thing with David he was up for that collaboration and he was up for saying yeah let's just do this and capture this experience and so he was very much on board with it you know and I think that's that's essential that someone's got the kind of the foresight to see that this could be something bigger and something that will last and not just a kind of quick fix documentary in a way. So, And how were the sort of cycling authorities, you know, the people who run the races, the people who, who run the teams, how helpful and sympathetic were they <laughs> in, in getting the film made? Well, you can imagine, I think, how difficult it was, really, from everything I mean, David would constantly help us with that access, you know, because we ended up shooting a lot with RCS, you know, the people that organised the Giro and Milan San Remo. And so we shot a lot. Most of the footage is from Terreno Adriatico and Milano San Remo. Was that because the people who run the tour were slightly less helpful? Yeah, but, uh, well, I had a meeting when we were kind of researching. I had a meeting with Christian Prudhomme and we we kind of just floated the idea of potentially shooting it at the Tour de France. And it just fast, like, just within those minutes. And I, they realised it's not going to be possible. But also, I, I wouldn't have wanted to do it there. We, it was never that idea. I think it was always about this preparation and getting to the Tour de France that I, I, I enjoyed the idea of this kind of... The Tour de France is a special, unique, one-off event that happens every year that you know everyone knows about but all these other races are these they're much more interesting and much more vibrant and and I kind of thought we could we could potentially get better access for these ones and for def certainly the way we wanted to sh I wanted to shoot this thing it's like I didn't want to just be like one of a million cameras and a million microphones trying to grab stuff you know and I, I, I really wanted to you know, take the time to construct scenes and, you know, really be careful about how we shot it. But Because the sort of core of the film is a lot of the on-bike footage mm. um, shot during races. Um, tell us how you went about that. What was the technology involved there? I think the, the biggest thing for us was the this bespoke motorbike that we constructed with these guys in France. 
that was the key thing for capturing these kind of, you know, the time trial scene and everything that's on the bike. This motorbike was captured. So that was that was that took a long time to construct. It's a really awkward bike with the Martin Radich, the DOP, sitting backwards. You know, a lot of the time and. No, that's not conventional. It's quite difficult to manoeuvre, and and it's a real big construction on the back of this bike, and so that was the the big thing for us. And then the other things we had, we were the first kind of UCI test project to use onboard cameras, and now they're everywhere, of course. But we had these fantastic tiny little lipstick cameras that we could just put anywhere, and they're really discreet, so you don't ever notice them. And I really like them. I think it's funny with all these GoPros now that are like 4K and all uh, big resolution. But for me, I, I really liked when these lipstick cameras were really basic, way before the, what we had them as, because they gave this real kind of jagged digital look, which I loved. You know, it, it kind of you felt the bike because we did these tests like years before just on our own. And I loved that kind of energy it gave and rolling forward the cameras are still good but and all the ca- all the footage in the film is actually like all ours more or less and even the kind of glitchy kind of like chaotic stuff that happens towards the end is this all ours it's all in camera sometimes some water would get into the camera especially in like milan san remo and but yeah amazing little cameras actually I'm feeling good, Charles. Let's do what you can. It's hard on everyone, David. There was people getting dropped on the Turkina. Stay motivated. If you stay in the front, you got to be good. Stay in the front, guys. Come on. Stay motivated. Everybody's hurting. Get up there, guys. Come on. It's a very personal story of David Miller's last season, effectively, and all the ups and downs of that. Um, and, and David is throughout it is 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 very honest and 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 open was that was that a difficult thing to film yeah it it was david has a a front and he's quite difficult to penetrate you know and he but and I, I knew he was always willing to go there it's just cuz we did hours of interviews not that many hours really I mean we just sat down for these kind of quite long two three hour interviews over the kind of course from 2011 I think and another one in the middle of that and then 2015 for instance it's a difficult barrier to get over with him definitely because he's so used to be speaking giving sound bites and he's very aware of how he comes across and aware of this how he speaks and what he says and each word that comes out of his mouth. So it is incredibly difficult to kind of get through that. But I think we, by the time we kind of shot that last interview, it became, we were just like, oh, come on, let, uh, you know, we were both, I think, quite tired of making the film in a way. Even though I think David would keep going, he would keep, if I keep asked him again or I pushed it, he would, he would, quite open to do and fair play to him I think that's that's credit to him for that but I think yeah really quite difficult <laughs> I can't say anymore really I think because he's so aware of this how he is and how he comes across and but there are a couple of bits where 
you know the the emotion of the whole thing really do come across yeah. and they make the film uh, absolutely and there's a, a moment where he gets angry with me which i think for me is the most it's so honest and straightforward and he could have given me an answer he could have said yeah this is the way it was, and that's the way I... Did this is this. the section about his return from yeah, a drugs ban. exactly. And he just refused to talk to me about it. And for me, that that was... I was excited when he got angry, you know, because it's, it's an emotion and he's, you know, he is sick of talking. And I, I can fully understand that, you know, I can really appreciate it. <laughs> now, the one thing that in the previews has attracted a lot of attention is the ending. Mm. Uh, without giving away... Um, what happens in the end. Um, how did that come about? What, what was the thought process that, um, that led you to end the film in that way? Well, I'd, what I, this was a scene that I'd wanted to shoot pro, right at the start. I really had always had this in my mind. I could never work out when we're actually going to do it because it wasn't, we would have to set it up. And I think it be, be I think that captures not only David and how he deals with things and how... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, a word to say, like how he, he lets go and lets rip. And I don't think it's uh, just him that does that. I think any athlete, any, any, any person can uh, appreciate that and they can go for it at that level and it's no different if you're a professional cyclist or a you know you work in a bar it's the same idea and I think for me I just I, I wanted this kind of abandon uh, I wanted just to be like ah like the shackles are off and I can enjoy life again you know and I think it's this idea of this I suppose the film's almost like a bit of a nightmare and but it was a dream at first, this dream idea, and then it became a nightmare, and he wanted out of it again by the end, you know. And Finley Pretzel's Time Trial is in UK cinemas from the end of June. Now, Stuart Clapp, editor of Ruler's Desire section, you said, if you don't like the ending of Time Trial, we can't be friends, or something like that. Uh, do you still stand by that? Yeah, I'm, I still stand by that. I, I think I said it was a barrier to our friendship. Um, yeah, I love that film. I think it's really good. And not just because I'm a David Miller fanboy, and, but I think that era of that, that Garmin team was, was, quite, was quite special that he was at. Um, I think it gives you a, a, a rare insight into what goes on behind the race. You know, there's a bit in it where David Miller can't find his gloves and things like this, and you, and you see the things that aren't so silky smooth and organised. And, it's, you know, someone's going through his kit bag and can't find gloves and can't get a jacket on and off. And I really like the ending as well, which um, I know that it's been it's a bit like Marmite. Some people have got it. David Miller's wife hasn't. I want people to come back to me afterwards and say, I got the ending too. And then we'll be friends. We'll, we'll Facebook message each other. We could hang out. But if you don't, then I don't know. I don't know if we would have been friends at school. Speaking of David Miller, he's in the magazine quite soon. He is. Yeah, we've used David Miller for um, issue 18... Five. Um, I'm just trying to. We because we're working in advance. So I can't. I, can, I never remember which issue it is. Eighteen five. So it's the next one that comes out. David Miller's modelling his new Chapter Three Girona kit, 
and he's got his factor bikes in there. He's a bit, bit of a collection. Went out, I suppose, when was that? Two weeks ago, went out and shot it. And Christian Mayer's in it as well. So it's, it's I don't know, I think we've peaked. I don't know how we're going to follow it now. That's it's, I've, I've just seen the drafts of, of the Desire pages and uh, I actually want to buy everything that's in there. There's a particularly cool bike. It's a time trial bike that's at the service course because Christian Mayer owns a service course in Geroda. It's a lovely bike shop. And uh, there was a TT bike that, that he had on his Instagram feed. And I was, I was, we have to have it. The shoot looks fantastic. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't really, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do for the issue after. Uh, Tour de France coming up. Uh, do you have any um, Tour de France memories you can share with us? Uh, I've, I've, I've got a few. I don't know which, which ones I'm allowed to say in public. But I did have a really funny night out once. Remember when they went up Alpe d'Huez twice? It was the year Froome one. I think it was uh, 2013. Anyway, we went out. We went out, and uh, it was it was wall to wall. This place. This is the beauty of cycling. I always find top of Alpe d'Huez. You've got every nationality under the sun in there. It's like everyone's getting you know on the dance floor. Everyone's mostly blokes as well. Mostly blokes. At one point, I turned around and my friend had a Lux, um, uh, two twins from Luxembourg, two lads under each arm and they were on a podium together so through the evening you're walking around the club and like ah, it's robbie McEwen. this uh anyway so i happened to run into one of lance's old domestiques in there who i've been drunk before but i've never been this drunk he was completely completely out of it he couldn't talk he couldn't walk so i carried him out with a with a pr from garmin and we were like, right, OK, we worked out where he would have been staying. So we thought we've got to get him out of the club before he gets thrown out or throws up. And so I had him over one shoulder and over the other. And, and he was fast asleep. And you, you, carry, you carry someone who's fast asleep and he's like a dead weight. You can't move him, even though there's nothing of him. But the only way I could get him to wake up was by shouting, quick, Landis has attacked. And he, and he woke up and his legs started moving again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.